The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, this is Alexis Haynes, and welcome to Recovering from Reality, where I illuminate the messy and magical path of coming home to yourself. Whether you're on the road to recovery, seeking self-care techniques for surviving the capitalist machine, or just need a moment to remember that you're not alone in your loneliness, we're serving up the ultimate truth. Your challenges don't define you. How you deal with them does. So, are you ready to recover from reality? Very complicated question for sexual abuse survivors because I'll say for myself for an example, I felt safe objectifying and being objectified. I mm-hmm. felt safe going to clubs. I felt safe having sexual experiences that didn't involve great intimacy and truth and connection because that's how I survived my abuse was developing this sense of mastery, if you would, around being uh, imperm. It, it would be impossible for someone to be, abuse me. Like mm-hmm. I'm unabusable because I can do anything. In today's episode, we are sitting down with Stacy Sprout. Stacy is a licensed psychotherapist. She's an author and publisher with over 20 years of experience as a therapist and social worker in a variety of settings. From community mental health and hospitals to a private clinical practice, Stacy is a certified sex addiction therapist and since 2006 has dedicated her practice to helping individuals, groups, and couples in recovery from sex and relationship addictions. Stacy is coming on to talk about her book, Naked in Public, a memoir of recovery from sex addiction and other temporary insanities. I'm going to give you guys fair warning. Obviously, this podcast, we dive into all different types of trauma. But in this episode, we are talking about early childhood sexual abuse. So here is a trigger warning. I don't want anybody to walk away from this feeling um, anxious or triggered in any way. So I'm giving everybody fair warning that in this episode, is it is an incredible episode and we talk mainly about recovery and ways to recover, but we also do talk pretty explicitly about our sexual um, survival stories. I hope you enjoy today's episode. So Stacy, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your story? Sure. Thank you for having me here. Mm-hmm. I am a 49-year-old psychotherapist from Seattle, Washington, and I'm married for six years. I have a dog, and what I do for my vocation is twofold. I work with people of all genders, couples, groups, families, individuals, supporting them to heal in various ways. And one area of specialty is healing from sex and love addiction. And how I came into that specialty is through my own healing. So as often happens in life, you're doing something and then people start showing up, giving you a message. And So I realized that I was in trouble with my sexual behavior and my relationships and I needed help and got into 12-step recovery for sex addiction. And it was a boyfriend at the time who told me what that was and I was terrified to consider it. But looking back, it was the start of a beautiful new trajectory for my life And people started showing up in my practice. I was already a therapist while I was struggling who were having similar issues. 
And so I thought, uh, I need more training. I need support. How does this work clinically to heal from sex and love addiction? What is that? And so lately, these days, I've been working with educating therapists about what that is and how can we treat it in a way that honors specifically women and doesn't continue to load the shame and the cultural just projections of evils of women's sexuality, but also acknowledge that there can be some real serious struggles that women can have. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that this is a topic that so many people feel a lot of shame around. And so I'm sure, and I know for myself, it took many years for me to realize how toxic my relationship with men was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's kind of, for me in my early recovery, it was just all about how do I stay clean? Mm -hmm. And what I didn't realize in the early days was that this is such a bigger thing and it's about that void that I'm trying to fill. And I I say this and I know it's controversial, but I really do believe that in this day and age, everybody's addicted to something, whether it's relationships, sex, work, drugs, alcohol, whatever it might be, video gaming, our cell phones, whatever it might be. We all have a hole that we need to constantly fill because We are so lacking in the connections that we have with each other. And that makes it extra hard, especially when you're recovering from sex and love addiction. It's because I want connection. I want community. I want this, you know, um, these relationships. Mm -hmm. But it's like navigating a minefield. You don't know how to do it. (laughs) Yes, it is. It's really challenging. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the further, um, like, what were the ways that you started to further educate yourself about sex and love addiction? Well, my education came through my life experience because I was bottoming out. I was suicidal. I was having such an awful, awful time. And so I started 12-step recovery for relational problems, but not specifically sex and love addiction. And then after working with a sponsor, she said, I think you have more going on here in the area of sex than you realize. I had done Mm. a fourth step and she heard me and she said, I think you need more help than I can give you. And so it was her, thank goodness she even knew about that back in 2001. Uh, And so that's how I got into sex and love addiction recovery specifically And I was educated through my own experience through those programs. There really wasn't anyone that I could find at that time that had training from the therapeutic perspective, which is different from the 12-step perspective, but they complement each other very well. And so gradually I went and got a job at a treatment center. Well, it's an outpatient clinic that specialized in treating. On one side, they treated sex offenders who were accused of crimes or Um, had committed crimes. And on the other side, they treated people voluntarily there for sexual imbalances and particularly Mm. addiction. And so I worked there for five years. And so I got a ton of on-the-job training, mentoring, supervision. And then I went and did uh, a a certification program to become a sex addiction therapist. Hi, I'm Allie Webb. And I'm Michael Landau. We're the founders of Drybar, which we started about 10 years ago. We are constantly hearing from budding entrepreneurs asking us for advice. This podcast is the place to go if you're an entrepreneur and want to start your own business. Subscribe to Raising the Bar so you don't miss a minute of the action and all the fun guests that we have. New episodes come out every Friday, anywhere you get your podcast fix. 
Why are you laughing? It was good. With your podcast. Subscribe to Raising the Bar. New episodes every Friday, wherever you get your podcast fix. I know that um, from my experience, and I know that you're a sexual abuse survivor Mm -hmm. in childhood, right? Yeah. Yeah, too. The way that that really affected my views about sex. So for me, because I was dealing with abuse from such a young age, and I think that I was around five when he started forcing me to perform oral sex on him, that that was just a normal, like that didn't seem like something that was sacred anymore. And I didn't even know that it was sacred in the first place because it was something that was just done in my household. And so um, that carried out into my relationships and the way that I viewed and respected myself and my body and and all of those types of things. So it, I guess for, for my listeners that maybe have been abused and don't know where to start, like, what are the first steps? Well, what I can say that has been so helpful for me and what I also do in my practice involves looking at a a very personal question, which is, is there anything going on in your life right now that you feel hurt by? Mm. And it's a very complicated question for sexual abuse survivors, because I'll say for myself, for an example, I felt safe objectifying and being objectified. I -hmm. felt safe going to clubs. I felt safe having sexual experiences that didn't involve great intimacy and truth and connection because that's how I survived my abuse was developing this sense of of um, mastery, if you would, around being, it would be impossible for someone to be, abuse me. Like mm-hmm. I'm unabusable because I can do anything. And so there was a certain like tough identity that was actually killing me, but I was in denial about that. And so for me, when I finally got into sexual recovery, that was the first time, and I'd been in a lot of therapy, but I wasn't telling anybody what I was doing. Yeah. So they couldn't really help me and they didn't know the questions to ask. So it was really in sexual recovery where I was introduced to this paradigm that, and I think this, to get back to your controversial statement about everybody's addicted to something, I think, and I really hear that sentiment, sometimes I wonder if because I work in the field and I'm a recovering person, I just see it that way, mm. or if it's really true, but I, I definitely think that as I look around, I'm like, wow, so many people are struggling. But getting into recovery with this paradigm that there's something going on that, that's killing you, basically, yeah. and it, it involves your sexual or relational life. And so in that in that framework, the question is, What is it that you're doing that you need to stop doing? And it may seem paradoxical to ask an abuse survivor, what is it you're doing? Yeah. Because really it's what was done to her or him that they are re-experiencing typically or reenacting as I was to try to tell my story through my behavior, but it was also a call for help. And so the ability to say, well, if I am masturbating to the point of self-harm, If I am having unsafe sex with someone where I don't want to get pregnant, but I'm taking risks or risks of infections, then those are things I I am doing. Yeah. Um, And so they are directly as a result of the way I was socialized, treated, abused, and what became normalized. And then what I kind of tried to 
take to the next level of what felt like empowerment for me. But ultimately, it was in recovery where I realized, you know, this is what I call it's it's a it's a gaslight. Like it's not actually really empowering me. Uh, so how am I going to do something different? And so that for me would be a question for someone who had survived where they were treated in a way that was not sacred is, are there any ways that you might be continuing that? And for many of the women that I see and some men too, they don't remember what happened to them. Mm -hmm. So you have a very clear memory and I'm, I have a clear memory of a number of incidences specifically. Mm -hmm. It's, this is another thing that's really hard about people who are abused. The system is so systematically against us. Like I can't right now, and we'll talk about this. We were going to talk about this writing a book because you have a beautiful memoir here. Um, and you can find this in the show notes. I will put the um, title in the show notes and a link to it, you guys. But um, I can't actually talk about my abusers because... I, when I reported when I was 19, it was 15 years after the initial incidences took place, which is the case for so many people because it wasn't until I, I, I always knew the abuse was there, but, and then that's the other thing about grooming and people don't understand grooming. Like, how could you love this person who was abusing you? Well, when the abuse is all that, you know, especially from a young age and when this person, especially if you have other chaos going on in the home, this person provided me with love and affection that I wasn't receiving from my parents and almost like a normalcy. And so even though when I was being abused and especially in the beginning, I said no and I knew that this was wrong and I knew that it felt icky to me and I knew that I didn't want that. I was also getting the attention that I really wanted. Mm -hmm. And I think so many people deal with that, but it's hard because like I said, I, I can't, I can't talk about who they were and I can't talk about, you know, a lot of stuff because and then you put yourself up for being sued and the litigation and all of that type of stuff. That's really, yeah. Um, so, and what's crazy is that when I did report and I said this, I explained what happened to the officer who came to my home to take the report down. This man now has two children. So he got, he ended up getting married, had two kids, both of which are daughters, which really scared me. And so I decided I need to report. I wasn't going to report. I needed to report. And the officer said, well, you know, sometimes, and then I'll leave out blank and blank, just do that type of things. They play house. They do X, Y, and Z. And, and I was just like, and that re-traumatized me again. Yes. So I, I do, my, my memory started to come back in sobriety of the specific details. One incident took place in a hotel room. And I remember walking into a hotel room in sobriety for the first time and smelling that hotel smell mm. and all of the sensations started coming back and the memories of where we were on the bed and the things that he did to me and the things that he was saying and mm -hmm. all of that stuff just kind of started to like come back really yeah. rapidly. Yeah. But I know many people don't actually know the specifics. Mm -hmm. And do you know, and or can you explain to us like the science behind that, like how the brain, I know the brain shuts down in certain ways to try to protect us when we're under an immense amount of of fear or adrenaline and things like that. Well, I will do my best. Okay. I'm not a <laughs> I know. But I try to learn as much as I can yeah. because I find it helps me to know, yeah. oh, 
this is my body's way of protecting me. Mm-hmm. So I I do want to say before I respond to that in more detail that I am so sorry that that happened to you. And I hear the complexity of your story, that this was someone who gave you normalcy, stability, and mm-hmm. love. And so many deal with that complexity. Yes. And we need the love. Yeah, because most abusers, people think that, and I did end up having a rape later on when I was 16. That was from a gentleman that I knew but didn't know very well. Mm-hmm. But most childhood sexual abuse that happens occurs with people that are close to the family or in the family. That's right. And this the second most frequent place that kids are abused is at school. Mm -hmm. So these are places where kids go a lot, right? They're at home, they're at school. And so the science, or at least the explanation that has been helpful for me to think about is two ways. So one is if we think about how energy and data come into the human field, uh, how do we, how does it come in? Does it come in in a little doorway in our mind where we we capture every narrative moment that happens and can repeat it back? Mm-hmm. No, that's not how we store information, mm-hmm. right? We store it through the gut and through our enteric nervous system, our kind of intuition. Some people call it intuition or gut knowing. Uh, kind of some may refer to it as the reptilian brain that picks up danger. Uh, we store it through the heart. How do I feel? Yeah. What is my heart experience of this? We store it if it goes up kind of through the nervous system, through the amygdala and kind of moving into the neocortex of the brain. So if you've ever seen Dan Siegel, he does this hand model of the brain. Mm-hmm. And I love yeah, that so much. Yes. So for you guys to know what we're talking about, if you put your hand in a fist and tuck your thumb into your palm and reach around all of your fingers on top, that's what we're doing right now. <laughs> We're holding our little we're holding our, our little, little figure. That's your brain, okay? <laughs> Imagine that's your brain. So so the way I think about it is if you have an experience coming into your mm-hmm. field of awareness that is confusing because that's, you know, yeah. uh, for someone who loves you that also wants to be sexual with you at too early an age and it's a relative or there's something very confusing about that mm-hmm. where there's not uh, the ca- capacity to consent. Um, but, you know, The consent is not, would you like to do this? Yes or no. It's kind of maybe there's a grooming, there's a tricking, there's a leading up to, or there's just no conversation at all. Something just occurs. But to a child's nervous system, that's very confusing because it can feel good, but it can also seem like there's something funny going on. And then there's the interpersonal dynamic. So if there's, let's say, an older person who's initiating sex with a minor and or a family member if not, but that person is exuding an energy of great conflict, like generally, like they know on some level, there's something very awful about that, very hurtful or shameful. And so they may have dissociated that in order to make that possible for them to do, but it's still in the room. Like there's still something there. So I talk sometimes about not only kind of picking up one's own confusion, but also picking up a lot of energy of whoever's perpetrating the abuse. So it's, it's a ton of information and data coming in for a child to try to make sense of. And so children, they accept everything that happens. It's just like, this is reality. If there's a Santa Claus, oh, there's a Santa Claus. We just, when we're little, we believe Mm -hmm. it. It's like, oh, okay, this person, you know, does that to me. That's what they do. And if, if they hit the confusion where they try to make sense of it is, okay, this is just the way it is. So there must be something wrong with me that I feel weird. So I'm not going to think about how I feel weird. I'm just, not going to think about that. I'm going to do something else to make that go away. Mm -hmm. And 
So the dissociation of the body, maybe the gut or the heart or the, you know, the amygdala that's, that's kind of picking up in this confusion and maybe some bad feelings, but at the same time, just, we can't typically know or discern when we're little that that person, let's say they, they're a sex offender, like yeah. they, they abuse children. That's what they do. And maybe hurt people, hurt people. Or there's, there's an explanation or maybe they're psychopathic or however they do that. We can't put that on them when, when we're little. We can't say that's because of them. So typically when we're little, we say, oh, okay, that happened. It's real. It's normal. Um, there's something wrong with me and I'll just have to try to forget it. Or it's not like we think about forgetting. I think if it's confusing enough, a lot of times it just doesn't even get all the way up to the neocortex to process. Mm. We just don't even get it past the amygdala. We just, yeah. we just shut it down. So to explain that, so in the palm, your thumb represents your amygdala, which is kind of where you're able to process. Emotions. Emotions kind of come from there. And then in the front of your hand would represent like the front of the brain. That's right. right. The neocortex. Yeah. And we... so if stuff gets stuck there and actually doesn't process inside into the amygdala, that's when things get kind of fuzzy and you're not able to fully process, right? Well, I, I think of it as the amygdala kind of can flood the, the whole brain. Mm. And so what Dan Siegel talks about is flipping the lid. So if if something comes up and it's confusing and there's strong feelings about it, like this is bad, I don't want to do this, or I don't know what this is or whatever, typically it, it, it's almost like I feel like the brain can blow its its circuit if it stays thinking about it too much. And yeah. so it does, it like flips the lid, which is when you flip your fingers up. So your yes. like fingers are flying in the air. It's like, I just can't process this. I can't integrate it. I can't mm. make it make sense with the world that, that this is someone I have to trust. So I can't make them bad, wrong. You know, I just have to try yeah. not to think about it and ultimately make me bad or wrong. Yeah. It's funny because my mom came on the podcast and she talked about how she just had no idea because from the outside perspective, we seemed fine. Yes. And, and so there was actually re-traumatization when I finally came forward because they didn't want to believe me. They didn't want to believe that it was possible that, that this person could be as bad as they were. Yes. And I, I honor, you've already shared two experiences, which so many women and men, people of all genders, transgender people are abused even more. Yes. Um, how, how they are re-traumatized. So we mm -hmm. talk about, oh, you know, in the Me Too movement, people are talking about, I was sexually abused or I was harassed. And, and that's kind of phase one. But phase two is when you tell people close to you and then they can't process. So they yeah. flip their lid and they actually go into denial or minimization mm -hmm. or, or victim blaming. So often is that. And th so that's when you're telling you have an intimate betrayal unfortunately, which is very common. And another level of betrayal is going to the authorities, the quote authorities, where you go, okay, who's responsible to keep the world safe so kids don't get abused? Well, okay, is it the police? And so what happens if you tell them? And well, what can often happen, unfortunately, as we see with the backlog of rape kits and, you know, that the, the criminal justice system is not set up in a way that is victim-oriented or trauma-informed at all. And unfortunately, particularly in the area of sexual abuse, you have a lot of people who flip their lids 
in in yeah. positions of power and because it's so common too like mm-hmm. uh, um, <laughs> the statistics are insane and actually just so heartbreaking about the amount of people that are being sexually abused in our culture and rape culture is still so prevalent. And when you talked about Me Too movement and just the way that people re-traumatize each other, I thought about the whole Brett Kavanaugh thing where everyone, you know, he didn't even get a thorough investigation. And now we're finding out that there's much more to this story, which we all who have been through it knew that there probably was. Mm. But this whole culture around just allowing people to abuse each other sexually and most of the time men abusing women. Yes. And it's just like, how, how do we end this? Um, which is a really huge question. I know. Well, I want to honor that you are part of ending this and I am part of ending this. We're trying to understand and explain the mechanism of what happens and think about ways to raise awareness around that. So going back to me, I didn't know that I was compulsively acting out my sexual trauma with addiction. And my brain patterning had been shaped around this cycle of acting out. And by doing that, it distracted me from integrating my neocortex and really remembering the horrors that happened when I was little. And so the attitude I had was what I have in my Pandora's box is so bad that there's nothing anybody can do to me right now that's going to be worse than that or that I can do to myself. And ultimately that didn't turn out to be true, which is why I got into recovery and said, all right, time to look in there, Mm -hmm. (laughs) time to start Mm -hmm. airing out some of the old, 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 old hurts and trauma and try to find healing for that. But but I think that awareness is a huge piece because... It's painful to talk about these things and hear about these things, but it's also, for me, so helpful because when you go, I'm not alone, it happened to so many. For instance, there's levels of trauma and then re-traumatization, and all of that is very normal in our rape culture. Mm-hmm. So we want to bring that out of normal and into scrutiny and say, let's not just accept that like Santa Claus, like, no, it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, That person is sick. That person is sick. We can assess how sick. And, um, you know, the, the larger cultural forces that are empowering people like Kavanaugh, those, those are big, but I look back to the women's March, look how many people were there. Yeah. I think so much of it starts at home. Yeah. I think so much of it, the narrative that we hear um, and have heard in the last two and a half years around, um, you know, there there are blessings in this messiness mm-hmm. of where we're at in, as a society in, in the U.S. Um, and I think we're kind of mirroring to the rest of the world the issues, you know, that even though we seem like we're great, we're, we're struggling still. Here we are hundreds of years since the beginning of our, you know, existence. Um, and so we're in this era and, and the whole narrative of boys will be boys. Mm. And these excuses that we have been using that allow the perpetrators to perpetrate and allow people to continue to hurt other people. So I think so much of this starts at home. And um, I talk a lot as a parent about 
consent with mm-hmm. my daughters mm-hmm. and what is okay and what is not okay and mm-hmm. red red flag feelings we talk about oh, a lot beautiful. what you know what those are and how we don't keep secrets and and things like that and so i think it's just we can do so much we, often we feel i think very disempowered the mm-hmm. news is always really negative and you know there's so many horror stories out there but it's like the way to break this cycle is to be informed, you know, because when we raise our sons to know what consent is and when we raise them to know what cherishing and respect is mm-hmm. and all of these types of things, it perpetuates yes. that ripple effect yes. of what our future should look like Yes, for so many, you yes. know, for, for all of us, you know, and yes. that's what we want to do. So, yeah, so we take these stories, you guys, and we, our, our mission, and we have a collective mission here is to empower people to not just own and heal, but to be able to feel empowered mm-hmm. by it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is such an amazing thing. And um, I plan on reading your book. Thank you for this. How do you get to a place of empowerment? Like, how do you finally feel good enough about your story that you're like, okay, I'm going to write this down and I'm going to start talking about this publicly. Cause that's a huge thing. It's one <laughs> thing to heal. It's one thing to accept, to surrender, to get into therapy, to start working, to change the behavior, to do all these things. And it's another thing to go like, Hey, this is what happened to me. Well, that, thank you that for that affirmation. I will take that in my heart. When I work with women and men, I use a model of therapy I call empowerment therapy. So I love that word. Yes. And I'm really clear that I am someone they are hiring to support them on their empowerment path. And for a while in the early relationship, I have a lot of influence on that uh, because they're usually in so much shame and confusion. And, and ultimately, though, they take over and fly. And so one of the key tools that I use is looking at a five-circle model of sobriety. And in sexual recovery, we often use a three-circle model, which is, this is what I can't do. This is what I'm doing that's not very healthy for me, but it's not going to kill me. But I kind of have to watch that stuff. And then this is what I want to do, healthy self-care. And so I added two levels to that model. And one is the level of visions. Like, what are your visions? What do you really want to do or have or be? And Yesterday, my vision was to go to Harry Potter World. Mm, <laughs> so I did it. Yes. I wanted to do that forever. And I'm so excited I got to do it. Uh, so there's sometimes fun things, but sometimes they're, they're big, big things, like, although that felt big to me at the time, but sometimes they're hard things, like they take a long time uh, to do, like write and publish a book. And so it was, uh, in the back of my mind, I had a sense that someday I was going to write a book, which many people have because books are amazing change agents for the world. Uh, and But I, when I started finding out about this model, I developed it because it worked in my own life. Because you can't just not have sex. Yeah. It's so much bigger than sex. Yeah. And, you know, intimacy, as you are talking about in the beginning, yeah. like, who want relationships? And so it's not a matter of yes or no. It's about how do we do it? And so, but it's not even about relationships with others. I mean, that's a huge part of it, but also about ourselves. So getting back to your question, I started writing down my vision and then I had this other level. So the fifth level, which is so important is life purpose, which is kind of like if you're creating a business, you do your, you know, your 
mission statement, mm-hmm. your purpose. And so it's like, what about the business of me? And so I realized that I have, well, my first purpose when I was doing this exercise was to get out of pain because I was in recovery. I was in the mess of it. My life was just in chaos, it felt like, and I wanted out of pain. And so even just acknowledging that that felt like my life purpose got me to another level of seriousness about how I worked my program, going to therapy, working really hard on my therapy, going to meetings. Like I really put more into it because I'm like, I want out of pain. And then gradually the purpose started to shift into something else. And as I got out of pain, there was more room in there somehow. And so then it became... I want to help people to have awareness about the profound wounding around sexuality mm-hmm. and that like I had and uh, relationships which can go to addiction or you know self-harm etc in the ex- extreme and then move towards something that was positive and sacred pleasure positive sacred um, vulnerable loving just some I just wanted to help people move out of that and not be stuck uh, because I was seeing that it was possible in my life So then one of the visions I had was to write a book about my story. And there were a million things that influenced that, but really the biggest influence was that I fell in love. And it was the man who is now my husband, who he was my muse. Like he really encouraged me. And sometimes I feel like I don't almost want to say that because I think I want to empower people and women to be, you know, independent and not dependent, which I was so dependent in my earlier relationships. But this wasn't dependence. It was love. Yeah. And that's the same thing with my husband. Exactly. <laughs> I know. I have to check myself sometimes, but yeah. Yeah. We, we touched on that when yeah. we were talking earlier and it is, it is difficult when there's genuine love and respect there sometimes. And I, I wrestle with this too, not to, not to over depend on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was just a, an amazing support. And I had so much support from friends and, and family at that time and local recovery friends, you know, because my book is about my own recovery journey from sex and love addiction, but it's also about a local community who surrounded a woman who was pretty much the only woman in her 12-step sexual recovery meetings. And they taught me about boundaries for the first time in my life and they wouldn't let me flirt with them. They wouldn't let me cheat with them, even though I would have, because that was part of my addiction. And they had boundaries and showed me. And so the story became about telling about what can happen for one person in a community when the ingredients of healing are there and the person keeps trying. And that's, Mm. that's what I did. So turning pain into purpose. That's right. I love that. That's right. Absolutely. So profound. I mean, and, and that's the shame work too is, is right there is like owning all of you. Every single bit of it, the messy parts and the great parts and all, you know what I mean? And that, that's the healing. Yeah. That is the healing. Stacy is coming to Aloe House, our, our treatment center to, uh, meet the staff who I think you're going to love. It's a, it's a really profound group of people who it's its own little community of people who want to help people Mm -hmm. using this model right of Mm. connection and not control Mm. and it's it's a good vibe it's a good vibe I think you're gonna love it um but you were talking earlier about what you were gonna go in and talk on and I thought that that was something we should touch on because it's so prevalent especially when you're newly sober Mm. to immediately jump into relationship 
Yes. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're going to talk about? Don't worry. This is going to air after you go and talk to them. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I won't scoop myself. (laughs) Well, so one thing I'm going to cover, which came about talking about the, when I was talking to Dr. Dina, the clinical director was what some people call the Bonnie and Clyde syndrome, which is that's sort of an extreme end of what we might call the trauma bond where people come together and there's some fundamental exploitation going on Mm -hmm. and, and how vulnerable people who are early in recovery are to those kinds of exploitive relationships, but it can be two way. And sometimes that is impossible to break in early recovery. So I, I hear about that a lot in drug and alcohol recovery where the, the only goal is to stay sober from whatever the substance was. And there's not another goal to stay single. Although it's certainly recovery encouraged. You take a year and, you know, then get a houseplant mm-hmm. and then get a dog and then, you know, <laughs> then try to date. And I think that's sage advice, but many don't follow it. And you know what? Just to be, sit in the messiness of life, sometimes that is A-OK. Like that's just sometimes people bond in in treatment or they bond in places and it's not the healthiest relationship and it's not the one they're going to stay with, but it may save their life. And so it's, it is, it's tricky to just have a rule because people are so much more complicated than that. Yes. And so for me, I was in a relationship when I got into sexual recovery and for many they are, or they're married already. And so they can't just be single or, you know, they have kids. And so we're trying to deal with the complexities but one thing I think of, of what is a trauma bond is switching it and calling it a drama bond. Because if a trauma bond often are people connected who may have some kind of complementary trauma mm-hmm. that they're reenacting together. So, um, but, but I like the word drama because they're not really working through the trauma. They're staying stuck in a dramatization of it. And I see that many times with women with who struggle with love addiction in my individual practice is they'll be in a relationship and this, this cycle will keep happening over and over and over and it's very painful for them. And with the addictive process, they don't make the changes that would help them to become aware of the underlying drama or the underlying trauma beneath the drama that's being acted out. And so then they keep reenacting it over and over and it it just gets worse and worse and painful and painful. And so Bonnie and Clyde is an extreme example of, you know, a crime spree and infidelity. And so, but most women don't get to that level, but they, they feel really hurt over and over or, or men too. Mm -hmm. And so what, what I'm trying to teach about is one key technique to support people to unhook from a trauma bond is Oh, sure. Sometimes if it's bad enough, you, you go into the 12 step model of that's your qualifier. Don't see them for 90 days. Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's a common tool in sex and love addiction recovery. But if that's not possible, and for many people I see, it's just not, they're not willing to do that. Then we just go back to this, this very simple definition of sobriety, which is, is there something going on in this relationship that's hurting you? And how badly is that hurt? And so I'll be talking about that tomorrow. The, the support of helping people self-discern. So a common sobriety kind of question might be if you're dealing with a trauma-drama bond in a relationship is the fighting, the conflicts. How mm-hmm. does that go? And so we can't say, well, I won't fight anymore because they're going to fight. And we can't say, I'll only fight skillfully because that may be years off. But we can say, I will not scream in front of my children. 
Yeah. And that can become kind of the gut level thing that they try really with all their might not to do. Kind of like not drinking. I'm not going to scream in front of my kids. And so we just, we could just work on that for a year. I mean, really, or however long it takes. But as they make progress with that, they, the, they feel better and better about themselves. And the shame comes down more and more. And there's more empowerment feelings like, hey, I did that. I came up with seven interventions I could do instead of that. And, and I was successful. And we just affirm the hell out of that because yeah. it is huge. Because typically whatever's being acted out is exactly what they were subject to as kids. Mm-hmm. So it's their normal. Yep. Absolutely. Breaking the cycles. I love that book by Dr. Joe Dispenza, Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself. Aww. So good. <laughs> but um, a lot of people in early recovery aren't ready to take a look at the relationship aspect, whether it's with your parents or a sibling or whomever. You know, and that's the thing is, you know, I got into a relationship early, like right off the bat in my sobriety. Then we broke up a couple months later. I met Evan eight months after that. We were married and it's been successful for us, but I don't recommend it for everybody. Okay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It is definitely we are the lucky. We are the lucky few. But my relationship with my mom, it has been eight years of mending you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. it's still mending. Mm-hmm. And even this morning, she said something reactive to me on the phone and I reacted and immediately like snapped. And she's like, okay, I'm not going to be on the phone with you when you're like this. And I had to go, okay, when you said this, I'm sorry. I totally just went into my 16 year old, fuck you, mom. I'm, you can't tell me what to do. <laughs> that whole dynamic. I felt the adrenaline rush, mm, yes. the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I could feel. And, and so it isn't perfect, but we get the perspective. We get the pause, not the perspective. We get the pause and then the perspective comes after. Mm. And that's something that I will say is a gift. And whether you're in recovery or not, mm-hmm. it's something that everybody needs. That moment to go, oh, wait, I feel my body doing this. I need to pause. Mm-hmm. Stop. Mm-hmm. What are my other things? And it was like, okay, here's my boundary. I don't want to be spoken to like that. Because mm-hmm. I, I can feel myself doing that. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to have a relationship with you like that. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to communicate in a way that feels whatever, whatever. So that's, that, that is an amazing thing. And we don't realize this, I don't think. I think it is true, especially when you're in addiction recovery from substances. That first year really is holding on for dear life. And yeah. just, you know what I mean? And then this other work starts to start coming, things start coming up. And hopefully by then you have the perspective to go, oh, wait, there's something here. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan of meditation and self-reflection and therapy Mm -hmm. because I think having a skilled person in your life that can help you know, encourage you in a gentle and loving way, but like, and, and celebrate those moments of victory. Yeah. That was a real victory that you that, and your mom had. Oh my God. <laughs> Heck yes, it was. <laughs> yes, it was. To be able to have, have that is, um, is a real, real gift. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Stacey. Mm-hmm. Um, where can people find you? Well, right now I'm doing two things. So one thing is working in private practice in Seattle. So that's where I am. 
And the other thing I'm doing is training therapists. So I'm about to release a, one of a series of four online trainings for therapists who want to work with female sex and love addiction. So that would be, you know, my website is www.stacysprout.com and that's Stacy with an I. Mm-hmm. So everything I do is on there. And then there's a link to a therapy site on there as well. And my contact information is there and my book's on Amazon. Amazing. Amazing. And the book is called Naked in Public, a memoir of recovery from sex addiction and other temporary insanities. And like she said, you can get this on Amazon and I will make sure to link this in the show notes, you guys. Um, Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. This week's affirmation is, I am a powerful manifester. I am committed to clearing my subconscious and creating a big and beautiful life for myself. And so it is. If you enjoyed this week's episode, do me a favor, head over to the podcast app and make sure to subscribe to us, rate us and leave a review. We have new episodes every Monday and you can follow along with us on Instagram at Recovering From Reality or visit our website at recoveringfromreality.com.